up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the True Crime Society podcast with Stephanie and Olivia. Right now, the time of recording is August 13th in the United States. Just want to make that clear because, as I'm sure you all know, we've been posting on a little bit of an abbreviated schedule, kind of a little regular schedule. Still. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to make sure the dates know. <laughs> we wanted to start off talking a little about some life updates because I know from the reviews that we get, everyone cares so much about our lives. <laughs> I'm yeah. just kidding because our reviews usually say, stop chit-chatting. <laughs> I'm only here for the story, not for your life updates. <laughs> Listen, if you don't care, we'll put in a timestamp when the story starts. So just right now, if you're like, I wish that shut up, go to the bio, the episode description, and I'll put the timestamp <laughs> there and you can fast forward. Yeah. But anyways, how have things been with you, Olivia? <sighs> yeah, I was convinced I had a pretty shitty July. A lot of, you know, things happened in my family life that weren't amazing. And so I was, you know, I was for me, I was like, August, this is my month. It's going to be my month. We put our house on the market, I think, like, I don't know, July 27 or something. So I'm like, it's definitely, this is going to be it. Someone's going to buy it in August. It's going to be, you know, a new start, new beginning. But I do not recommend selling a house. <laughs> I never understood how many time wasters there are in the house selling process. And I don't know how all these people have all this time to waste. Like we had some person come through last week three times. So we're like, this is it. You know, they're going to make an offer. And then they're like, oh, we want a bigger kitchen. I'm like, didn't you know this before? <laughs> like before the three like hours that you've been in the house? <laughs> you know, I get, I get, it's a big investment. I get, you know, it's where you're going to live. I get all that. But I've just never understood. I don't know how real estate agents keep their patience because like I hit my our real estate agent sent us all the feedback from the people who have been through and just some of the comments are so ridiculous like we have a I four wouldn't bedroom even house know. it would like hurt my feelings well, <laughs> we had a meeting last night and he's like okay so from now on I said I don't want to hear the comments unless it's something I can do about it <laughs> because like like our house is a four bedroom house it's not a massive house it's just like a normal size family house and some of the comments were like, wow, way too big. We only have two people in our family. I'm like. <laughs> so why are you here? The, the, like the house is online. There's a floor plan. It's advertised as a four-bedroom house. Why are you going to view a four-bedroom house if you don't want a four-bedroom house? So I'm like, oh, my gosh, just things like that. And I said to him, he goes, so from now on, we're a neg- negativity-free zone. <laughs> so, oh, my gosh, I don't know how they do it. I would lose my mind. I'm, I'm clearly not built to be a real estate agent because I would not have the patience it's funny you say that because I was listening to I don't even know some I listened to a bunch of like celebrity gossip podcasts because why not yeah there was some like famous celebrity realtor on there and they asked him what's the most he made from like selling a house in commission and the most he made from selling a house in commission was a million dollars <laughs> like I, I do agree that's it like from two percent he gets two yeah. percent commission yeah it sounds like even just for a normal house it sounds like a lot of money but like our real estate agent has been working super hard he was at our house like seven times last week and like I think it's full-on but hopefully only for a short time until you sell like you know I, I do agree a million dollars from one sale is a bit crazy but I guess they sometimes go months without a sale depending on the market and whatever else so. yeah like i don't know how you get into being like a celebrity realtor yeah. but that's what you need to be <laughs> yeah that would be the dream wouldn't it a million bucks from mm-hmm. one one sale that'd be amazing 
Yeah. But anyway, very, very stressful. I just want it done. Hopefully someone buys it soon. Well, usually when we record an episode by the release of something. <laughs> yes. Maybe next week I'll have an update. Fingers crossed. So hopefully that means tomorrow oh. you're going to get an offer. <laughs> Fingers crossed. So what's been happening with you? Um, Nothing overly exciting. I've been trying to go on vacation forever, obviously. Who's not trying to go on vacation? But I've had to push it back a few times because of the said family emergency that I've been talking about. But anyways, I was supposed to go on vacation next weekend. We pushed it back because of everything going on. And when I first requested it, my job was like, oh, yeah, no problem, whatever, not a big deal at all. So I didn't think it would be an issue to like push it back. Then my job tells me that we might have to push it back because someone's <laughs> leaving, someone has to work part time, this, that, whatever. When one of the supervisors tells me this. He's like a guy who could be my dad. I just started crying and it was so <laughs> awkward. And I was like, I'm um, sorry, I'm crying. And he was like, it's okay. It's okay. Pat you on the back, like awkward pat on the back. Like, All right, well, there you go. Leave. <laughs> I was like, sorry, I'm just like going through a really difficult time. I just really want to go on vacation. Like, well, you know, I'm really going to work on it. And I didn't believe okay. him at all. But today they told me I get to go on vacation when I want to in a couple of weeks. So I'm very excited. very nice of him to try and work it out. I know. I mean, I cried. So what are you going to do? <laughs> but mm. that is hopefully what I'm considering my like reset. Everything after this is it's going to all be over and everything's going to be great once I go on vacation, which I'm sure it won't be. And we'll look back at this and laugh. When something terrible happens. <laughs> Nothing else. I figure we've had our quota of terrible. I think I've probably said that before. We literally but... said that like last episode. <laughs> I figure we really, really, really have now. So, oh my God. Gosh, I if, it's not, it, if it's not now, it has to at least be like, all right, once the summer's over, it's like a new season. Yeah. It's the fall. Well, for us, it's spring, which is like new beginnings. So that's exciting. Yeah, I can't wait. You, more week. For you. For me, it's fall. What does that mean? <laughs> everything's dying change change of season (laughs) true speaking of updates and (laughs) things always changing after we release episodes as soon as we release an episode Mm -hmm. so the first one has to do with our last episode about mostly harmless little did we know apparently there is groups of very I'll say dedicated and passionate people about this case. And that's not being like, oh, you know, like the hiking community, they're so nice. They all came together. They tried to figure out who Mostly Harmless is. Not that. There are probably two dueling Facebook groups, apparently. Yeah. I I never even really thought to look into these groups because, you know, I know that now there's a group for every single case. So I don't know why we didn't even think to look into it. But um, afterwards... After we released the episode, we got a few messages about these groups and some of the things that were going on. And um, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's literally bit... trophy hunting at its finest. Like both groups have each taken their own ownership of this man. Um, I think for me, they feel very possessive about him. And like, you know, I, I know most of them, it comes from, you know, actually a really good place and wanting to help him get his identity back. But there are a few yeah. rogue <laughs> members in the groups 
they just take it too far. There was more drama in one of the groups, especially because they were convinced that they had identified him this week. They said they'd gotten a tip and his initials were RWN and he was from an affluent family. He was from an affluent family in Louisiana. So they were posting photos that, and I know they're now saying that they never said he was identified, but I've got the screenshots where they absolutely totally said they were positive. They knew who he was. They were Um, like high-fiving. Yeah. And then it turns out that that it's not him. They sent, you know, they were claiming they identified him and then apparently the Collier County Sheriff's Office called them, got the information and it's not. They found the person and he's alive. So it's just, it's very fascinating <laughs> really. Like, you know, I, I totally get being into true crime and I get having your pet cases and all that. Like we, we definitely do that. I'm not knocking that or saying that's, you know, unbelievable, but just some of the behaviour of only a few people in these groups is crazy. Yeah, like a small handful. Yeah, like obviously, you know, don't we're not saying everyone in the groups are crazy. I've seen lots of really, really great stuff in those groups. You know, people trying really super hard, which I think is it's a great, so, you know. These are the types of people, that handful of crazy people. <laughs> They're the ones that give true crime groups yeah. a bad name because there's groups like ours where we just like – to talk about things like to discuss maybe just like some ideas but we're not like getting involved they're just like patting themselves on the back like look at us doing this great work like we're researching like no you're just causing problems and you're it's gotten to the point where there was some drama surrounding it where they're literally doxing people they're calling yeah. they're threatening to call people's jobs to right. yeah. them for their behavior and that is where to me it gets so disgusting because it's like one like, you don't even know this person, the missing person or the person you're trying to dox to yeah. be so invested in that you're trying to ruin someone's life. Yeah. All right. So next update, it's not brand new news. It came out probably a few, couple weeks ago, but I still figured it was something that we would briefly talk about just because we did an episode on the Tote family or the Todd family, maybe. How it you was say about it two, weeks like ago, two weeks ago, it came out. So it came out that Tony Tote, in typical family murder fashion, wrote a letter to his father that was 27 pages long, <laughs> handwritten. It's basically saying, in a lot of words, that Megan, the wife, was the one who actually killed the kids and herself. And he was, like, blacked out. But in this letter... I started trying to transcribe it because it's handwritten. It's kind of hard to read. And it's very long. Before I realized like how long it really was. <laughs> and this letter, it honestly just shows how insane he is and what a true narcissistic psychopath he is. Yeah. I'll read like I'll read the start of it and then I'll see if I can find any good quotes because obviously we're not gonna read twenty seven pages. The full the full 27 pages is on the blog as well, Lizzie put out there. So it's, yeah, we've got every handwritten page if you want to go up and read it. So he wrote it on June 19th, 2020, and it says, Robert, please excuse the impersonal nature of printing in this letter, but seeing as it's too painful to write legible script, it will have to do. Parentheses, I'll explain later. <laughs> I've recently been released off Suicide Watch as I was placed due to the circumstances, horrific as they were in December 2019 that the media and sheriff's department here are making me out to be the next butcher of Baghdad. Thanks to counseling here, the Champlain, the Shap, 
discipline services and my sister, I'm beginning to resemble the proud man I was prior to this incident, which shattered me beyond comprehensible ways. I remain in isolated, protected custody to protect me, parentheses, as I'm not jail material, (laughs) and to protect my case. I write to you in response to the letters I received from you to correct all the inaccuracies created and generated by the creative writing machine, parentheses, the press, (laughs) to sell papers and the sheriff's department, parentheses, who want to score a big win after screwing up a prior murder case that the governor of Florida had to intervene and move out of this district. To respond to your absurd allegation in your last letter and offer you forgiveness, (laughs) First of all, I'm a thousand percent innocent of all these preposterous charges, both on the state case and on the proposed Medicaid fraud case. The statements taken from me were interesting to say the least. I'm writing you in confidence. Please do not share this with anyone but your wife, as I need not to be shown off as a trophy again, nor do I need to contend with the results of the telephone game when it's time to testify in a couple months, please do not break my confidence. So then he goes on to say that it's more basically just about how he's the victim. The rug was pulled out from underneath him and his world was shattered. His wife and children were everything to him. I love his, I love my wife deeply, blah, blah, blah. And then he basically blames the whole thing on her Lyme's disease and how she didn't feel great. And somehow that caused her, to just murder her whole family. It's just a very condescending tone. It just kind of goes on about how how great and smart he is. And he yeah. lists all the renovations of their home as if that's <laughs> supposed to prove something, like how much money he has, which he clearly didn't. Yeah. But it's just a very strange, very gross letter. But I don't think anyone really believes it. And about how he talks about the Benadryl pie. She gave them Benadryl, Tylenol, PM pie, separated them, and then stabbed and suffocated each one. I re- at the news yeah. of this, I ran to the bathroom and puked. I was weak. <laughs> yeah, it's always like about how hard it was for him. He's the victim. Like always about him. And like several times, like she was my wife and I loved her. I said prior, I'm still deeply in love with her. Mm-hmm. Like okay. And it says that he put the bodies in the bedroom and covered them for warmth and protection, and that he put them in comfortable sleeping positions. <sighs> it's basically what I expected. I'm not surprised. I know. It's like I was surprised at first and I was like, no, I'm not. He said, I wasn't there the night it happened because I was selfish and wanted, he wanted to turn a wonderful day into a most wonderful day because Meg deserved it. (laughs) Um, The other one that I've been following this week or for the last few weeks is the case of Layla Cavett. She's a woman who went missing in Florida. Um, She went missing, I think, around July 26. So how it all came out, I don't think we've spoken about this one before, so I'll give a quick background. But how it all came out is that a little boy was found wandering the streets in Miramar, Florida. Um, The police put out a thing saying, this little boy was found wandering alone. If you know who he is or have information about his parents or guardians, please call us. So about a day later, I think it might have been about 18 hours, but about a day later they discovered who this little boy was and they found out that his name was Camden and that he should have been with his mother, Layla Cavett. So everyone has been searching for Layla ever since July 25th, 26th. So um, it's just it's been a crazy, crazy case. So um, Layla originally lives in is from Georgia. That's where she was living at the time. So everyone was like, what was she doing in Florida? What's going on? We found some um, 
uh, images from a dating site that she was on. So people were questioning if maybe she went and met someone in Florida. I looked it up. It's an 11-hour drive or, you know, between 10 and an 11-hour drive from where she usually lived to where her car was found in Florida. So it's just very strange. Anyway, they eventually found her car about, you know, I think it was maybe four or five days later, they found her car abandoned. Um, And then a man called Shannon Ryan has... I don't know if you'd say he's inserted himself into Layla's case, but he is, I'm pretty sure, the last person who was seen when Layla was seen alive. You know, we don't obviously don't know what's happened to her. I hope she's alive. But he released a 51-minute long video about the case. Like this guy is very interesting. He, You know, it's all about witchcraft. He's even put photos of the FBI and the police searching his car on his own Facebook He's said, like, I'll read some of one of the posts he made. I can't figure out what I did to make the FBI want to investigate me. Well, you know where I am if you want to come get me. I'm not running. I'm just not coming to you. Mm. And then it goes on and on. Um, Like, it's just, it's a crazy, crazy case. I even saw that Dr. Phil has now picked up the case and today or yesterday they've just, you know, released an episode on Layla. Um, And then there was also a press conference today where they released some more images of her she was seen at a Cracker Barrel and then at a gas station as well. And the last image is of her entering and exiting a Lexus sedan at 3 p.m. on July 25. And to me, it looks like that car is Shannon's car. Um, there's photos, you know, that I said he's posted of the FBI searching his car and that does look like the same car that Layla got in and out of. So we don't know, you know, everyone's like, what is everyone's thinking my thinking was that it was probably 60% that she something has happened to her and that 40% she might have been on a bender or, you know, some drug-related issue. But I just don't know. This, this is, you know, over two weeks now, nearly probably at three weeks. I just, I don't know. And I've seen in the group as well a lot of people are like, you know, this guy seems super, super shady, but I don't think anyone has a real definitive opinion on what's actually happened here. They've got a really good blog up on it, you know, videos, screenshots, everything. So if you're not familiar with it, check it out. But, yeah, crazy. We'll have to keep you updated on that. Hopefully some things will come of this new kind of media push with the press conference and Dr. Phil and everything. I'll have to read the blog because I actually have read next to absolutely nothing about this one. Yeah, it's like linked and it was at 26 threads, and I was like, well, <laughs> guess I'm missing out on this one. So today's episode is going to be about Michael Shaver. In a lot of ways, the story of Michael Shaver is similar to that of Mostly Harmless. While Michael Shaver's story has nothing to do with hiking, trail angels, or finding yourself in the wild, it brings us back to the same question. If you went missing, how long would it take for someone to realize? Surely not two years, right? You'd have a job, a family, friends someone would definitely notice you were missing within a few days. You're probably right about that, but factor in this. Not only are you missing, but someone's pretending to be you and responding to your messages. They're updating your social media and convincing your concerned family and friends that you just didn't feel like talking. Michael Shaver was last seen in early November 2015. Over two years later, in February 2018, after being given the runaround by Michael's wife, Lori, a friend finally called for a wellness check on Michael, and later that year, police discovered Michael's remains in the backyard of the Shavers' Florida home under an awkwardly placed and awkwardly shaped slab of concrete that Lori tried to say was a fire pit. 
So we can also welcome Michael's wife, Lori Shaver, into the Smug Bitch Society from our <laughs> earlier episodes. Because <laughs> like another Lori we know, not only did she probably play a hand in her husband's death and bury him in their backyard, she got remarried months later to a convicted felon in that same backyard. Because nothing starts a marriage off better than saying I do over your actual husband's shallow grave. And so that is the summary, and Olivia will tell us all the details that I'm sure you'll be dying to know about this interesting, strange story. Hmm. So we started we started this group in March 2018, um, which was about the time that you know this was all kind of starting to come to light. We don't often make groups for small cases anymore, but this one was just so crazy, um, and there were so many people into it that we thought we would, you know, start it. And I'm glad we did because we got a, we got a lot of information for this podcast from the group. Lots of neighbors joined. Fat, like I think Michael's sister's in there. One of the neighbors gave us literally like the play by play every day. Yeah. Like all she did was look out her window and see what they were up to <laughs> over there. Oh, like it's yeah, it's it's just unbelievable. And you know, and, and I think from where where he lived it was quite a rural rural area. So you know, obviously there's probably not much happening most of the time. So when this happened. This was pretty big news. All right, so we'll start back when Michael and Laurie met. So Michael Shaver met Laurie Lee Paddleford and they were childhood sweethearts. They started dating when they were in the seventh grade. Back then they lived in Lawrence, New York. Um, so just to give you a bit of a you know idea of the couple, Laurie was born in October 1982 and she's now 37. So Michael was born in January 1982, so he would have been 37 now, um, but as we know, he didn't quite get there. After they both left school, Michael trained and worked as a commercial pilot. He decided in the late 2000s that his dream job was to be a mechanic at Walt Disney World, and the family moved from New York down to Central Florida. Uh, Michael and Laurie had two children together. Their names are Isabel and Aiden. I'm not entirely sure of their current ages. I from my calculations, I think Isabel must be about 15 and Aiden must be about 12 now. And so that was their family, the four of them. In March of 2014, they got a mortgage for a property on Sandy Pines Road in Lake County in Florida. And the mortgage was for $163,817. So I've had a look on realtor.com at the house. It's listed as a four-bedroom, three-bathroom home on a five-acre lot. Um, like I had a look, it's, you know, they've got the listing details. It says things like five acres high and dry, no rear neighbors, bring your horses or board someone else's property has a horse barn, four pastures, and is fenced and crossed fence room to roam room for toys. Come and get away from it all. Um, doesn't mention surprisingly the fire pit. So then it says traditional sale ready for new owners then I, I bolded this because I found this quite interesting it says agents please be sure to read re, read realtor only remarks so they must get a lot of comments that has on to the be about the body right well, you'd think so surely I thought it was interesting that even though this is like a four-bedroom house like three bathrooms look at it it looks like a, a trailer yeah it does it looks like a big trailer like it's just the inside I remember I think we saw pictures of the inside like it seems fine it just it literally looks like a trailer somehow. It's like an optical illusion. But it's a huge property. Anyway, just that's just give you an idea of where this all kind of took place. So they they bought the house in March 2014, but it was right around then that their marriage began to fall apart. So June on June 24, 2014, which was about three months after they bought the house, we've got um, a text, an image of a text that Mike sent to a friend. 
He said that Laurie filed for divorce last night. So the text says, hey, you, how you doing? And then Mike replies and says, hey, bad, she filed for divorce last night. It's the first day without a ring on my finger in nine years. How are you? And then the person Most replies. how are you ever? <laughs> the person replies and says, I'm okay, I'm sorry. It might be for the best knowing the way she's disrespecting you and treating you like she has. You deserve to be loved and happy. And then Mike replies and says, I'm ready for that. So that's June 24. On July 22, so about a month later, there was a domestic violence charge filed against Michael. Um, I haven't been able to find much more information on this. The, the information from the court documents is very basic, but there was a domestic violence charge um, against Michael at that time. So on September 4, so another two months after the domestic violence charge, September 4, 2014, there was some more trouble in the Shaver house. There was an arrest affidavit and Laurie said that the two of them began arguing over a home repair job. It escalated, she said, when Michael grabbed her arm and shoved her into a wall. She said Michael went into the bedroom and retrieved a 40 caliber handgun out of his nightstand. She said they struggled with the gun and he hit her in the head with it. She got the car keys out of his pocket and fled with the couple's children to Target in Claremont. The deputy noted that she had bruising on her arm and back, cuts on her hands and arms, and a bruise on her cheek. When Michael was questioned by the cops, he said it turned violent so fast. He said he couldn't remember who landed the first blow. He also said he probably did grab Laurie to calm her down. He said Laurie threw a vase of flowers at him, which shattered against a sliding door. He said she then grabbed a gun out of her nightstand and said she was going to end it now. He wrestled the gun from her and then grabbed his own gun. She ran into the living room where he cornered her and he then she grabbed the gun again, which he had luckily just unloaded and struck him in the head with the pistol. He had a cut on his head, the deputy said, and he was arrested as the primary aggressor, which is what the report said. He entered after this into a pretrial intervention program, so that charge was dropped. So at the time, Michael's sister Stacy said on Facebook, along with the domestic violence charges, Laurie took off with the kids driving drunk while Michael waited at his home for the police. They were both going to be arrested. The children would have been placed with CPS. So Michael told the police to just take him. Okay, so the next legal thing to happen was in September of 2014, an order of protection was filed against Laurie. This time was the one involved by Elisa Ballou. I believe Lisa was a neighbour of the Shavers um, and the following that I'm about to say is just rumours, but there are rumours that in June or July of that year, Laurie bought a 2014 black Chevy from JB. So I'm I'm assuming that B stands for Baloo and J is Lisa's husband. Mm-hmm. On August 1 of that year, so before the order of protection, Laurie crashed her car into a tree on Florida Boys Ranch Road and the kids were in the car and they were injured. During this crash, Laurie said that she'd bent over to retrieve her purse, but the neighbours believed she was drinking. So she needed a new truck. So she must have bought a second truck from JB. So she bought one in June, July, bought another one in August, which is interesting to me. So I know that the neighbourhood rumours are that Laurie and JB were having an affair. Um, Again, Mm -hmm. just a rumour, but that's a lot of what was being said in the group at the time. That's what the locals are saying. <laughs> there was, which isn't a rumour, there was an order of protection filed against Laurie by JB's wife. Seems plausible. Yeah, well, it would make sense. It would explain a lot of things. 
So we're now at 2015. So just to make it clear, Michael was last seen at the end of this year, 2015. At some point, we're not sure when, a friend of Michael's sent his ex-girlfriend to the Shaver house and she said that she saw Michael's wallet, his phone, his guns and some other personal items. We know that in May 2015, Michael and Laurie were spotted by a neighbour shooting guns in their backyard. So clearly the divorce that she he spoke about in 2014 hadn't quite happened then, but there's photos we've got. I'll put them up on the blog. It's Laurie shooting a gun. There's a bunch of text messages and things like that about them shooting guns in the neighbourhood. So that was May. During the summer, so I'm assuming, you know, June, July, around then, Laurie took both kids to New York to visit family. Mike contacted the authorities at that time and said that he did not want the children to leave the state. A neighbour of the family in our group told us that a child custody dispute was just about to happen prior to his disappearance. So, you know, this would have been probably the start of that around summer 2015. Interestingly, though, after the summer, or, you know, around the summertime, August 4, Laurie and Michael filed for an LLC together, which they just seem to be so up and down and divorce, not divorce, starting a company, you know, all these things. They just seem like a generally toxic couple. Like, um, I know the family and friends of Michael have painted him to be like this great guy, like, as, I mean, I don't blame them, I would too, but to me, it doesn't seem like he... I don't want to say like he was a bad guy, but he also doesn't seem perfect either. Not no. saying at all that he deserves what happened or anything, but it just seems like together. They just seem equally as bad as each other. Yeah. yeah, they were very toxic. Like maybe Lori came out worse on top, but yeah, he didn't seem like the greatest either, to be honest. Yeah, not a perfect angel. No. So the last time that any of Michael's family spoke to him was in October 2015. His sister Stacy has said in our group that that was the last time she spoke with him was October. Mike's friend Scott said that they all went four-wheeling together on October 11, 2015, and on November 7, a co-worker said their families spent the day together at the Florida Flywheelers Tractor Show in Fort Meade in Florida. So we've got a post about that on our blog. Michael's last documented appearance at work was November 8th. That was the day after the Flywheelers tractor show. His co-worker Cody said that he saw Mike when they both clocked out. Um, he said that there was a gun show on Thanksgiving weekend that they talked then about going to. On November 10, which was two days after he clocked out, he was scheduled to show up at work and he didn't. And then November 11. Apparently, he, someone, Michael or someone else from his phone sent a text saying, I quit, don't contact me, you can keep all my tools. <laughs> so it seems like something happened either the night of November 8th. I'm not really sure when he gets off of work because I think I remember him working a weird schedule. So that was yeah. a Sunday. So either after work on the 8th or the 9th, it seems like whatever happened, happened. Yeah. I know that some people must have questioned why you know, why didn't his work follow up? And Cody, who's his co-worker, said, we did. We texted him and got a shitty-ass response saying, I quit, don't contact me, you can keep my tools. You know, I guess people, what can you do if that, I guess you'd have no reason at that point to really think. If you've only seen him a few days before and he's quitting, you just would think, oh, well. Especially, like, they're just co-worker friends, but you're not great pals. Like, one of my co-workers said to me, like, don't ever contact me again. I'd be like, whoa, okay. <laughs> thanks thanks for the memories <laughs> <laughs> like, all right 
Okay, so later in November 2015, I think it was around the 25th or 26th of November, a co-worker went to pick up Mike for a truck show that they'd spoken about. Mike was not there and apparently Laurie tried to sell the co-worker Mike's guns. I said before his name, co-worker's name was Cody. It's Corey. I'm sorry, that was my mistake. But Corey, his co-worker said, one of my co-workers who is a really close friend with him that was supposed to go to the truck show went by the house and Laurie gave him the runaround. Then Laurie tried to sell him all of Mike's guns, asking my co-worker to give her a fair price. And when he did, she jumped his shit it and completely went off on him. So I don't know what was happening there, but they're trying to offload Mike's guns or she is anyway then. So that was late November. So early 2016 now, Lori apparently told deputies that she had been in a relationship with a Travis filmer since early 2016 and that the two planned to marry. I'm not entirely sure, and I can't find it now, why the police or the sheriffs were visiting her in early 2016 because we know that Michael hadn't been reported missing yet and I don't think anyone really suspected anything was wrong. So I'm not entirely sure why the sheriffs were there in 2016 unless it's a you know a bit of a miscommunication and maybe she told them later that they were in a relationship in early 2016. But anyway, this is the first documented evidence or proof of the relationship with Travis. So according to Laurie, she said they started dating in early 2016. So we know that Travis Filmer, his job was a student life coordinator with Real Life Christian Church. So you'd think he was a great guy, (laughs) but he's not. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that was early 2016. We don't have a date. But on April 20, 2016, someone using Mike's phone or, you know, Mike replied to a friend's repeated text. So the friend wrote and said, hey, how have you been? And then obviously no response. So that was January 5, he wrote, hey, how you been? So then April 14, I think it says, he writes again, hey, Mike, listen, I'm getting worried about you and I'm getting the impression I've done something wrong. If that's the case, then just tell me and I won't try to contact you anymore. So then someone called Michael replies a few days later and says, I am good, okay. Just don't feel like talking to anyone right now, dealing with a lot of shit right now. So then his friend right back. And that really and says, doesn't seem like, sorry, that really yeah. doesn't seem like from comparison to his other messages either, how no. he talks or writes. Like, well, that's like one of his friends actually said that this message didn't sound like Michael. Um it said, I think the person who who sent those texts was also called Michael. So the two Michaels were chatting back and forth. But this Michael says, I'll add, I got a message from Mike in April, which says, I'm good, okay. Just don't feel like talking to anyone now. Dealing with a lot of shit right now. There isn't a lot Mike wouldn't talk to me about. That message is also a bit more aggressive than he ever usually was, even when he was stressed. He was also funny on how sentences would flow. So the redundancy of the message isn't like Mike's normal structure. This only came after I was pressing him hard to respond to me, which is also unlike him. So I think around April, the friends are trying, you know, maybe getting a little bit weirded out, worried about what is going on because no one has seen him at this stage for five months, which is unusual. I think it's easy to for people to say like, well, why didn't they call police sooner? Blah, blah, blah. Like, I know this, this was a long time, but at this point, like we said during the Holly Bobo episode, like it's not the first thing your mind thinks of. Like no one thinks like their friend is murdered and someone's pretending to be them or like you're, you just don't think that off the bat. 
And especially when someone is, you know, essentially replying, you might think if someone was stressed that their message, you know, even if it does seem unusual that maybe it's just because they're stressed or, you know, whatever. Yeah, I agree. It probably wouldn't be the exact first thing that you would think of. Mm-hmm. So that was April. Now we're at July 6, 2016. Lori had a mediation stipulation with Capital One. She was ordered to pay back $2,658.11. Can't really find much else on this. Got the, We've got the document up on the website. Just says basically that. So I'm not entirely sure what was going on with her finances at that time. So we know now that Travis has since come out and said that he met Laurie in the summer of 2016. So that goes against what she said, which she said they met in early 2016. And that he has he told investigators that they should that he thought Laurie and Michael were divorced and that there should be a copy of the divorce in the clerk's files. But detectives have said there is no such file. So this didn't happen at the time, but this is now, you know, we know what's what Travis has since come out and said. So his story is that they met in summer of 2016 and Laurie's story is that they met in early 2016. So they didn't work very well to get their story straight. I think the dates are also different because they, I think they were for sure having an affair before he was dead. Yeah, yeah. That was mid-2016. So um, from August 1 to August 22, 2016, Mike's Discover credit card, there was $3,088, I guess, racked up on the card. Records indicate that the card was issued on August 1 and then terminated on August 22, so about three weeks. The court paperwork indicates, though, that he had been a cardholder since 2014, so we're not sure if the August 1 date refers to the efforts to collect on an earlier balance or if there was a new card issued on that date. However, it's interesting to note that the paperwork in the court document does not include any signatures for Michael. So, you know, he clearly didn't appear in court about this issue. So that was August. And then in November, Discover Bank sent to Mike a civil cover sheet. They tried to serve the documents to him at his home and they honked the horn, but the gate was locked and no one came out. The person serving the notice left behind a business card and days later that person got a voicemail from Lori who said her husband hasn't lived there since 2014 when he was arrested for battery with a firearm. She told the guy that he she didn't know where Michael lived anymore. She really does remind me of Lori Vallow in a lot of ways. <laughs> like this is the same shit that she does. Yeah. December 31, Lori married Travis at the home on Sandy Pines Drive, which is Sandy Pines Road, sorry, which is the home that she bought with Michael and they got married right near a fire pit. Travis put the marriage on his Facebook. So, you know, you know, you got married December 31, whatever. So I've got some screenshots of his social media on there with that on there. The photos are so corny and embarrassing just for the record. <laughs> like, you would have to pay me to take these. No, I still yeah. don't think I would do it. You could pay me to take these photos and I don't think I would do it. I wonder if um, Travis's mother posted these photos because she was the one who seemed to post a lot about Laurie and Travis on social media, so it wouldn't surprise me. I know. She was, like, so proud of them. Just for some background on Travis, for those who weren't in our Facebook group, Travis is a five-time convicted violent felon. He has been arrested for assault with a deadly weapon twice, and he has been arrested for home invasions and DUIs. So, great guy. 
he portrays himself as a real, like, I guess a Christian or a real, you know, yeah, I think. Yeah, like the photos are them bowing, kneeling on the ground with their heads (laughs) touching each other's and like holding their hands over the Bible in the (laughs) yard. I don't know how else to describe it besides it makes me really uncomfortable. Yeah, it's very. Considering they're both most likely felons. <laughs> so they got married December 31, 2016. So we're now at 2017. April 7 is the first um, you know, event in that year. Discover Bank dropped their case against Michael because they ended up not being able to serve the summons. Hmm, I, know, I feel like that should have been a bit of a red flag as well. Anyway. Um, so the photo that you just spoke about where they're holding hands and praying over the Bible was posted on Travis's Facebook. He made it the cover photo on May 9 of that year, May 9, 2017. So then June, a month later, uh, June 19, Travis's mother posted a photo from Laurie and Travis's big day at Fire Pit Wedding to her Facebook page. True love prevails. She also announced, I wonder if they bought their stuff on Amazon. (laughs) She also announced that the couple were expecting a baby, which was going to be her grandchild, and that it was due to be born in February. So this means I did do some little calculations, and this means to me Laurie would have been very newly pregnant at in June, maybe, you know, a month or six weeks or, you know, maybe eight weeks or whatever. So the, tra- the caption on that photo, it's, I'm assuming it's Laurie's two kids with Michael. There's two children. You can just kind of see their backs. And Laurie and Travis are kissing in the wedding outfits. It says, grandbaby number five will be here in February. I adore my growing family. Travis, and then she's tagged, Travis and Laurie Lee Filmer. So Laurie's changed her name. You know, she's a filmer now. She's not a shaver anymore. August 6, 2017, Laurie's grandmother died. We found a copy of the obituary and it mentions that Laurie and Travis are married. So it says that she survived by all these people and it says lists Laurie and Travis Filmer of Clearmont, Florida, which I think is an error because it should be Claremont. And then it also lists Isabel and Aiden amongst her survivors. Laurie is still Laurie Filmer at that stage. A few days later, on August 16th, Travis's mother posts another photo of the couple again, announcing again that her grandbaby would be around in February. It says, my beautiful Laurie and Travis will bless me with my third granddaughter in February. So we've got that photo of them. It's a selfie. Laurie's holding the kind of camera up. They're both smiling and looking very smug and happy with themselves. Smug bitch society. Yeah. That's August, September 14, Travis posted another Facebook picture of him and Laurie at the beach. You can only see their backs. Um, the kids are again in the photos. They just don't know who took it. It must be the grandma <laughs> again, but, you know, just walking on the beach. Their biggest fan, Travis's mom. <laughs> so that's September. So then we're at November 14, 2017. So someone, Michael Shaver, posted a photo on his Facebook page. It's a photo of a gun. It's well, I think it looks like to me like two guns. One is kind of it's like a stock there. photo though. Yeah, it's just a stock photo. It's, it's not like someone mm, took a picture of a gun or it's something. It's just a photo of a gun and chambers. You know, you can see the chambers of the gun, and you know, I'm not very gun literate, but it's just it's literally just a boring photo of a gun. There's nothing exciting it's just about it. A boring it. stock gun photo. <laughs> but it was posted in November, which this was now two years after anyone had seen Michael. So, you know, people still aren't really 
connecting the dots yet. You know, his friend was a little bit worried in April of that year, but I guess the text kind of put his mind at ease for a little bit. But so two years now since anyone has seen Michael and his Facebook is updated. November 27, 2017, Laurie and Travis are tagged on social media again in a post from a local horse ranch. And the post said, feeling thankful to have an awesome team. And it tags Laurie and Travis. So January 2, 2018, so about two months after his Facebook account was updated with the gun, someone updated his Facebook account again. It shows a group of men at a bar drinking. Someone in the group did a Google image search and we found that the photo came from an Instagram account um, with the handle Sportsman's Redneck Juice. (laughs) I'm just opening it up now. So it says Sportsman's Redneck Juice is a business that does Wisconsin Bloody Mary mixes handcrafted in small batches. So someone's obviously kind of trolled Insta maybe or somehow come across this photo and He's like he's not even in that photo, right? No, like, well, that's what I was going to say. But I thought maybe I fucked that up. But I'm pretty sure he's not in that photo. No, I remember thinking that and looking at it and being like, "Oh, the picture of his friends." The guy in a kind picture. of maybe looks like it could be him, but I'm pretty sure it's not. But I feel like that's like it just shows how fucking stupid. Most likely, Laurie, who was posting these, <laughs> is like, why would you be? Like, oh, let me get a stock photo of these random people at a bar, <laughs> like. So January 18, 2018, even though the baby was said to be due in February, Laurie gave birth to her first child with Travis. Um, We believe this child was a girl. I'm not sure of the name. It doesn't really matter. But anyway, Laurie gave birth to her first kid with Travis in January 2018. Uh, So February 2018, Scott Amatuccio, I think is how you say his name, he was Michael's best friend. They started to talk to other friends and to Stacey, who was Michael's sister, and they all then realized that no one had seen Michael since 2015, even though, you know, they all knew his Facebook account was being updated. One friend mentioned that they went to Michael's house in November 2015 and Michael was not there. The friends said that Laurie Shaver had said Michael had gotten into a black SUV and didn't return. And the friend also spoke about fire pit and cement area that hadn't been there previously but was there in 2015. So that same month after they realised that Michael was missing, Scott reported Michael missing. He told police that he hadn't seen Michael for years but he says for a while he chalked it up to them just being busy. But in mid-February he asked deputies to do a welfare check. He said, I got this gut-wrenching feeling that something is not right. Investigators went to the Shaver home and they met with Laurie who said she hadn't seen him since 2015. So the police said that at first she let them inside to talk. Upon speaking to her for a few minutes, the conversation ended up making its way outside the home, at which time she stopped being cooperative and she asked for her attorney. So that was Lieutenant John Herrell, who was with the sheriff's office. He gave that quote. Another police officer was there that, you know, that day and his recollection was that My understanding is that the conversation went outside to the back of the house and that's when it abruptly stopped. We were no longer allowed any access to the property after that. And that was Sergeant Fred Jones from the Lake County Sheriff's. So she originally let them search inside the house, but then when they wanted to look outside by the concrete slab or the fire pit, that was when she said she wanted to call her lawyer. So I'll just quickly go over some information about the fire pit. Jeanette did an amazing job on this case. There's a whole um, album, which I'll put up on the blog too, which have photos of the fire pit and the 
you know, eventual crime scene. So there's a photo from Laurie's back porch where you can see the fire pit. It just looks like a big, wonky, weird. It's like there's no. No wonder why she panicked when they went outside because this <laughs> fire pit, if that's like, if you can even call it that, it's literally a screaming red flag. It yeah. is. In the middle of, like, they have little animal pens. In the middle of these animal pens, it's shaped like Africa, to be honest. Yeah. And it's, it's just, just a random shape. Like, it looks like they've just filled in a hole that was there. Like, and I know that you've said apparently Michael had been digging it out to be a duck pond before he died. So that mm-hmm. makes sense. Which would make more sense than this fire pit being yeah. there. There's an aerial photo of the search and the fire pit. So there's one, like, four kind of mismatched chairs, a little table, a few kind of tree stumps that you can sit on, and then in the middle there's a large, you know, it's pretty large, like a, a I don't know, even here. it's just a homemade fire pit that is kind of made up of bricks on the side. Looks like there's cardboard boxes in there that they may have been going to burn at some point. Um, if you're committed enough to murder someone... And then you just, like, give up before you finish. Like, like why wouldn't she have made it into a nicer, like, patio or something? Like, yeah. where it's just not, like, like, it literally just looks like you poured concrete on grass. Yeah. And we're like, good enough. Yeah, cl- you know, close enough. And then in all the photos, <laughs> and there's even a photo from Google Earth or Google Maps or whatever anyway, some photo that you can see from the air, you can see the fire pit and in it you can actually, and I don't know if it is, I figure maybe it is, but you can actually see what looks like the outline of a human body. Um, you know, the police have it, said. It is. I think the cop, unless they were also just guessing, but it literally looks like the outline it, it of a totally body. It looks like it's, a, you know, someone lying down, they've got one arm up, um, like the other arm must be down by yeah. the side, and then you can see, like, it, it looks like a human body. It doesn't look like, oh, what is that? If you were looking at it, it looks like the imprint of a human body. It looks like so, almost like what the outline would be in, like, those old, yes, like, murder A crime movies. scene outline or something. Yeah. So the police have said about that because, you know, and it was it's evident in the photos, not even just the photos from a satellite, if you can see the discoloration in all the photos of the police searching. So it says, upon walking up to the concrete slab, a three-foot by six-foot depression was noticed immediately. The depression appeared to have a browning discoloration and resembled a shallow grave beneath the slab. That's what the deputy said in his report. So they'd also <laughs> tried to cover it up by pouring a layer of new concrete over the depression. So it says here the same, I think it was Detective Harrell, sorry, Lieutenant Harrell, he said, it was shoddy workmanship. It was not smooth at all. He said the slab was about two inches thick. And another deputy wrote, you can almost make out the shape of the body and the direction it is laying. Laurie told them that the slab used to be part of a chicken coop. And when they got rid of the chickens, they were making a duck pond. So they apparently asked Laurie at the time if Michael was buried beneath the slab and her words were, no, that's ridiculous. So, (laughs) you know, this is February. By March 1, Laurie had retained an attorney, Jeff Wiggs. So that was interesting. I know she asked for her attorney on the day, so that's not really surprising, but she didn't muck around and waste any time. On March 9, Deputies attended the Shaver House again. They had my birthday search again. <laughs> it's always on your birthday. What else was it? Emery and there was something else where I was like, oh, like the day before my birthday. a Laurie Mallow thing maybe on your birthday. Yeah, it must have been. I don't remember. Anyway, 
Um, so detectives and deputies rocked up to the house again with search warrants. They looked all day for clues. They brought in a cadaver, a cadaver dog who alerted twice on an area outside the shaver home. They used ground radar, shovels, and a backhoe. They turned up nothing until... I don't even know why they bothered doing all of that. Like, clearly, Why didn't they just look there straight away and the fire pit? Like they, they knew all, where they wanted to look. Yeah. Maybe they were just trying to be extra thorough. Maybe they couldn't believe that she was really that dumb. But Yeah, you know. they were like, no way she wouldn't do that. 5.05 p.m., they decided to turn their um, attention to the concrete slab. We do have breaking details here. We can tell you that they have found a arm bone in a fire pit behind the home here just south of Claremont on this acreage where the shavers shared, Lori and Michael Shaver. We want to go to Shopper 2 and show you an aerial of exactly what's going on as investigators are securing that scene. They had been searching all day, searching areas where cadaver dogs had indicated there might be something there, areas where ground penetrating radar indicated there might be something there. A couple of areas were searched with nothing to be found that all all of a sudden in the fire pit as investigators were looking for evidence they did find something and a neighbor witnessed their reaction to that and she spoke with us just moments ago they had been digging in another area for a little while and then they've come up to the fire pit um, they removed all the cement there was a, a lot of cement actually and then they dug a little deeper by hand and then um, they kind of stopped all of a sudden and backed up and then everyone celebrated and of course, by that being satisfaction, they've been looking for evidence and now they believe they have found evidence into what might have happened to Michael Shaver. It's important to point out that Michael Shaver is still officially a missing person. Even though they have found human remains here, they can't do, really do anything as far as solving this missing persons case until they do a lot more work. And that work will continue into tomorrow. But we did speak with Lieutenant John Harrell about what this find means to this missing persons investigation. Obviously, we're mindful of the fact that he's been missing, hasn't been seen for almost three years, and here human remains apparently have been found here at the location. So obviously, we will be working with the medical examiner's office to get the identity confirmed. And of course, the medical examiner just showed up here after this human arm bone was found in the fire pit behind the Shaver home. We asked whether or not uh, they know where Michael Shaver's wife might be. She was here at the scene earlier, sitting in her truck, not wishing to speak with us, referring us to her attorney. Her attorney, I should point out, said that she is cooperating in this investigation and she had nothing to do with her husband's disappearance. But again, they are going to secure the scene tonight, the Lake County Sheriff's Office. They have been searching in, in a great way for Michael Shaver for the last three weeks, reported missing just three weeks ago, even though they say all the financial records from Michael Shaver vanished off the grid in October 2015. They will be back to the scene tomorrow morning to continue the search to find more remains and then work to make that positive identification. Reporting live in Lake County, Dave McDaniel, West 2 News. So they came back the next day, which was March 10. And they found additional human remains and articles of clothing. And they also said that Laurie was now a person of interest. So we've got tons of photos on the um, blog. You know, there's masses of people, trucks, the backo. They've got the tents up, which is a bit reminiscent of the Velo search, you know, to cover it up or whatever. To When there's tents, you, you always know something's up. <laughs> when they try and hide it from them. So we've got photos on the blog if you want to check out the search anyway. So it did take a few months for these remains to be identified. And on June 15, so around three months after they found them, the police confirmed that the remains did belong to Michael Shaver. They, shocking. You know, I, yeah, shocking. 
They identified his DNA with his father's, um, Douglas Shaver, and Douglas Shaver lives in Georgia. It just kind of stalled from there for me. Nothing, you know, there's been a few little things that have happened which we'll go into, but essentially they found the body and then it's kind of been radio silence. They said Laurie was a suspect to this day, which I'm getting ahead of myself, but Laurie and Travis, as far as we know, are still together and I'm fairly sure they've had one more child. Um, But it just kind of is weird that they did all this and then now there's nothing. I think they're, I'm sure they know it's her. Yeah. All this time that's passed, there's probably not a lot of biological evidence and they must only have like circumstantial evidence, which they probably don't feel comfortable going to court with. So that's what I'm guessing. They're trying to either find even more circumstantial evidence or they're trying to find like biological evidence to really pin it on her or on Travis. But it's like you don't even know where he was killed. Like he might not have been killed at the house. Yeah. Anyway, so they identified him in June 2018. On October 12, 2018, the bank started to foreclose on the home. Laurie responded to the foreclosure in November 15, and she said, were it not for the slander and interference of both law enforcement and the news media, the respondent could have fulfilled her contractual obligations. Hmm, she sounds like Tony Tote. <laughs> um, as far as we know, we know a local down there and – I think Laurie and that either may still own the house. They did abandon the house. They left, packed up and left, and I think they moved to Orlando, if I've got that right. But um, they packed up and moved. But in the process, they did leave their pet pig there to fend for itself. So that just shows the kind of people that That makes me, like, the most mad. I know. Leave, Don't leave that poor little animal to fend for itself. Poor little pig. (sighs) Anyway, so... We're still not entirely sure of the actual status of the house, but it is, as far as we know, it's empty and abandoned for now. So as we mentioned kind of before, many people have questioned how did no one realise that Michael was missing sooner? So Stacey, who's Mike's sister, said, his family had tried to find them ourselves without involving authorities. The thing he married led everyone to believe that he just took off and he didn't want to be bothered as she is a sociopath. I have tried probably hundreds of times to find him. So in our group at the time, someone asked, was there a specific reason why the police, the family didn't want the police to get involved? You know, we know that there'd been some criminal issues with Michael and Laurie in the past and whatever, you know, so maybe that would explain why they didn't really want to get the police involved. But another family member said, we kept getting told we couldn't do anything without proper ID, like a social security number, which I don't know why they didn't really have or and I don't think that is the case because you know I'm sure many people are reported missing without having a social security number a friend's information was taken instead of a family member's information because it was for a wellness check at that stage it wasn't actually for a missing person Stacey seems to have been the most vocal of the Shaver family you know she's spoken to the media a lot I know she's still in the group and she had a clarification I, I posted this kind of these notes to see if she had anything to add and She had one clarification, which we've made, but she was a spokesman for the family. She also spoke to the Orlando Sentinel about the case and um, why they didn't kind of look for him sooner. It says, we didn't want to get authorities involved because we thought we could find him on our own. We knew that he was going through some marital issues and we thought he wanted to be by himself. Like I get both sides of how people are like, what took them so long? But also I get like the family, like he was an adult. He was in his 30s. If and the thing is, everyone has a different relationship. Like, who knows? Maybe they only spoke every, you yeah. know, 
That's what I was going to say. Like, if it was my sister. No, no, I know. Like, that's what I was going to say. Like, you know, if it was me, I know my husband would know I was missing straight away. But there's other people who in my family who I, you know, not my, not my, you know, but everyone's different. Not just because it, it's the case in my immediate family doesn't mean it's the case in everyone's family. Everyone has sister, a different relationship. And then also lived in New York, right? Yeah. So it's not like she could just call over and go and check on him. And they, I'm sure that we don't have the whole story as well. Like, I'm sure there was probably some more messages and, you know, just because we've spoken about the ones that we know about. I'm sure there's other things that happened if, you know, someone was replying as him and who knows what other messages and other information was sent out. Mm-hmm. So we're now at August 2020 and literally, like we said before, the case is just kind of stalled. No one's been arrested. No one's been charged. He clearly didn't bury his own body under two layers of concrete. So there must be something going on here. You know, I know that some of the theories are that maybe he was abusive and Laurie killed him in self-defense, which is why nothing's happened, but there's still a a death that's been covered up here. And Um, they would also close the case then, I think. Yeah, well, you'd think so. So I know that also they haven't closed the case because in May this year, the police have said they know how Michael died, so which is a good sign, you know, at least there's that evidence. And they've also said that Laurie is still the main suspect. So to me, that shows it was a clear homicide probably. Mm-hmm. Assistant State Attorney Emily Currington said it's under investigation by law enforcement. I know they're going to be doing additional reviews. And then Jeff Wiggs, who's still Laurie's attorney, um, responded as well after an, a news agency called The Daily Commercial reached out to Laurie for a comment this year. And Jeff said she doesn't know who did this crime or how it happened. He had a lot of enemies and was not liked by a lot of people. So I know that in the group too, Stacey has said that's not true. He didn't have many enemies or any enemies. So I just wanted to add that in as a bit of a response to that statement. He has a lot of enemies, but he ends up buried under cement in his wife's backyard. (laughs) And she, you know, who else would have access to his social media to update? I'm assuming she had his phone or his computer or however he did it. His enemies. I know. His enemies definitely buried him in his own backyard. And she didn't notice. Yeah. The other thing too, just another kind of rumour that we've never been able to clarify, but, you know, we spoke about Laurie's possible affairs and extramarital activities. But I think as part of Michael's pretrial intervention agreement after the, um, you know, assault with the gun and everything, he was ordered to move out and he stayed in an airplane hangar, which kind of let him meet the terms of his agreement. We've learned that he had a friend run a background check on one of the men Laurie was sleeping with, so we don't know how many there are, which man it was, and it showed that the man had a history of violence. So it's assumed around that time that um, Michael may have threatened to fight for custody based on that, which if, if Laurie is the killer could have been a bit of a motivation to get rid of him, which makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. So that's really it. There's nothing. I just had another look this morning just to double check if we've missed anything or if there has been any updates. But this was a case that seemed to move really, really super quick once they found out that he was missing and then it's just stopped. We don't know why. Hopefully it's because they're just getting all their ducks in a row. Um, I know in the group every now and then someone will message and say, is there an update? Is there an update? And there just never is. Must be so shitty for his family. Like, Like we all basically know she did it. Yeah. And just, it's been, when did this happen? Like two years now that there's been no progress, public progress anyways. Yeah. And I, I doubt that they know much more than we do. Well, it's good. It's at least good that they've said they know how he died. Like that's, I feel that's a positive. I'm guessing he was shot because even if you're skeletal, 
you can still see like a bullet. And also they had guns in the house. We always discuss theories. And I just think in this case, for me, really the two things that could have happened is that it was a fight and she killed him either accidentally or, you know, she felt threatened and it was self-defense. Like, you know, if she pulled out a gun before, maybe that's what happened this time. And I know in the fight we spoke about earlier, he had unloaded the gun. So maybe that didn't happen this time. I, I'm assuming he was probably shot. But apparently like there was that. two guns. She had a gun and he yeah. had a gun. So I think my personal theory is that she killed him either in self-defense or during an argument or she killed him because he was threatening to take custody of the children based on her, I don't know, her activities. I don't think it was, say, an accidental death that she's covering up, like an overdose or something like that. I don't think it was that. I think Laurie absolutely caused his death, but for what reason, I'm not entirely 100% sure. Do you think Travis helped? I think Travis must have known, surely, if, you know, they're together. She's saying they're together early July. And the other thing, too, that we didn't really touch on is that Laurie has told police that her and Michael were divorced, which is a lie. There are no divorce records. So essentially she married Travis illegally. I don't know if they've since, I don't know how it works in terms of. I think they just like had a had a wedding. and Yeah, maybe, maybe they never really made it legal and all that. But Travis did say that there should be divorce records on file, which they're not. So I don't know. The other thing with Travis is I know he doesn't seem like a great person, but did he know everything? I, I'm I'm sure he must, and especially to stay with Laurie now, like after all this yeah. has come out, after the body was found in the backyard. Like any normal person who wasn't involved would have been like, um, I got to go. <laughs> so I've had enough now. I don't want to be part of this. But I feel like he had to have at least helped, like, get rid of the body or bury the mm. body or with the cement. Like even though Laurie was – she was a bodybuilder, but she, like, went to the gym a lot. She worked out. She, she was strong. I just don't see her – like hauling this body out there by herself and doing the two layers of concrete and especially like she has kids yeah they must have had to do it fairly quickly like I'm assuming they just didn't have a body hanging around the house for a few days they I'm assuming it all happened fairly quickly after he was killed so I I do agree that she must have had to have some help to bury him in that way you know Mm -hmm. who knows if, if Travis knows the whole story I suspect he probably does though if he's still yeah. with her. So we'll put all the photos and all the timeline and everything up on the blog, all the social media, and we will keep you updated if anything does happen. This does seem to be a very slow-moving case. Um, hopefully, something for Michael's family especially, hopefully, and I know that they're still waiting for something to happen, waiting for justice for him. So hopefully it will um, come to a head soon. Um, so I, in the group too, while we were researching this, I asked for people to send through some cases of similar circumstances. I asked for them if anyone knew of, of a case where a spouse or a partner had been killed or had disappeared. And it's basically pretty obvious that their partner did it, but the partner has never been convicted or charged. So the one that came up probably the most was Carol Baskin, <laughs> which <laughs> is true absolutely true everyone thinks carol murdered her husband and fed him to the tigers so it does happen like there was tons what i'll do is i'll make a list anyway but there was tons and tons of suggestions for cases where this happens all the time it's a bit disheartening but i guess like we say it's always the husband or wife always the husband and then like it seems a lot of the time too a lot of the time in these type of cases it is adultery that um seems to be the catalyst for this happening like i think um, it was in Michael 
Shaver caused a lot of issue, did in Michael Chambers. Um, another case that I'll just quickly talk about is Michelle Harris. She went missing on September 11, 2001, so, you know, the famous day. I'll just read a little bit from the Charlie Project. It says she was in the process of divorcing her husband. She'd filed for divorce eight months previously. She had got an order of protection against her husband. Her husband's name was Cal or Calvin. The divorce was described as complicated. Calvin did not want to end the marriage. Michelle had sexual relationships with several other men while she was married and Calvin had been unfaithful as well. So I'll put what I'll do is I'll make a bit of a list or a compilation of all these cases because there were so many that we got sent through. I'll put them up on the blog. But he has been taken to court I think four times for Michelle's disappearance I'm pretty sure twice there was a mistrial at the third trial in May the jury couldn't reach a verdict and he got a mistrial as well and the fourth murder trial was in 2016 he waived his right to trial by jury and was trialed by a judge instead he was acquitted of all charges so it's just one of those things there are a lot of cases that are even more complicated than Michael Shavers it seems where the spouse is clearly responsible but has managed to evade. What's happening with Cat West? Like I know the <gasps> husband was arrested. Did you see that like... they've set a date for his trial? Oh, no. So Finally, yesterday they did that. So finally. That probably... Finally. So... That's another one where at least we got an arrest, but it's been taking forever. So Cat and her husband were seen on seat. We've got another group for her as well. I'll put it up on the blog as well, but... Kat and her husband, if I remember correctly, were seen at a liquor store. Um, she was a bit of a um, saucy minx. I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, she had a big online following. She had some... She basically had, like, the equivalent of what OnlyFans yes, is now. Yes, back then, what OnlyFans is. So um, she was found dead basically outside their home and... Without her, pants? I can't remember. Yeah, partially nude, it says. It says she had a subscription-only website where she went by the name Kitty Cat West. Her viewers paid $15.99 to view her adult website. So the allegations that cat was struck in the head bite with an absinthe bottle and that her Which husband... Was found next to her body, right? Yeah. Her husband has been arrested for that. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting for his trial and they've finally set a September 14 trial date with a backup trial date of October 19. A pre-trial conference is scheduled for August 24. So that was actually a really interesting case. Maybe we can put that one on the list and do an actual episode on Kat one day soon. Yeah. I was going to say it's an interesting one because it comes with the typical like slut shaming, like she was selling her nude photos, but apparently he knew about it, but there's just... A lot going on with that one that you could talk about. So maybe we'll do an episode on it. Yeah, it's very interesting. We've got tons of information on that one as well. The last one that I'll quickly just two seconds talk about is, because it's a current one, is Suzanne Morphew. We've got a blog for her as well. So she's a 49-year-old woman and she was reported missing by a neighbour on May 10 in the town of Maysville, Colorado. So her family have said that they're worried her husband, Barry, hasn't told investigators everything that he knows. He told the family he was working in Denver when Suzanne was reported missing and their kids were on a camping trip out of state. So Suzanne is still missing and I know a lot of people um, suspect her husband may be involved in that one. Mm-hmm. So I'll make a little, I might just do a whole separate blog post actually for them because there's a lot of very, very interesting cases if you need a bit of a rabbit hole one day to have a go down. So I'll put them all up online. Yeah, so, I mean, that's really all the information there is on Michael Shaver. Obviously, if anything happens, hopefully before we release this episode, we'll let you guys know. I'll say one more little thing about Michael Shaver is I feel like it's a bit different to the ones that we usually do because there's not a whole amount of 
official information. A lot of our information in this episode I know has come from social media and all that, which is a little bit different to what we usually do. So I just, I think it's a very interesting case because we were able to look at it as it was happening, you know, in real time with social media and all that. So I know there's not a whole bunch of official sources and official information, but we've tried to bring you the timeline based on all the information that we do have. And obviously it's going to be on our website, but if you want, you can also join our Facebook group if you look for it. It's LinkedIn True Crime Society, our main group, but you can see if you join the group, um, the neighbor, I think her name was Wilma. She was posting basically play-by-plays. So we did get a lot of information. A lot of his co-workers were in the group, um, friends. It was one of the cases where it seemed like instead of the family and friends being annoyed at us, they kind of all came together. I'm sure yeah. there was times where they were annoyed, but they were pretty active. They were. And I think they really appreciate that people are still um, invested in this case as well. Yeah. And next week... I think we are going to cover bodies found in suitcases, which should be interesting. So we'll go over a few different ones, kind of more like a themed episode. Um, Lazi helped us with that one. She did a lot of research on it. And Jeanette did a ton of research for Michael. I know I mentioned her before, but she's our Michael Shaver expert. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So make sure you guys, if you are liking the podcast, give us um, a five-star review or whatever follow us subscribe and let us know what you think give us some feedback always good to a nice review so make sure you do that join our facebook group follow us on instagram pretty much every social media platform except not like tiktok Um, (laughs) haven't figured out a way to do that yet or what we would post but maybe if you have ideas for a tcs tiktok let us know (laughs) um i mean before it gets banned anyways (laughs) we've got a few days left probably (laughs) (laughs) but um fuck having a tagline so we'll we'll see you guys next week hope you have a good week see ya Bye.